particular element of the new covenant and I want to continue with that particular topic today because we simply didn't have time to get through it all last week. And uh, in any case, it's probably not a good idea to throw too much that might be a little bit new to you because our, our brains can't cope with learning more than a few new ideas or new concepts at a time. And you've probably noticed that if you go to a party or a function and you're introduced to people, it's pretty easy to remember the first few people that you're introduced to. It's much more difficult when you get to about seven, eight or ten. It's very hard to remember their names. And that's something to do with the way our brain works. So um, we don't want to try to introduce too many new ideas uh, all at once. Let's just recap a little bit, though, about what we've been sharing over the last few weeks. As you know, I really felt God speak to me earlier this year and say, I want you to talk about faith until you exhaust the topic. So I really don't know how long this will take, but I will take a few little breaks. In fact, Jeanette is going to do the discussion point next week on Nehemiah. So that'll be a bit of a break from me and for me as well. But uh, Nehemiah, of course, was a man who lived out a life of faith and changed his nation through rebuilding the wall around uh, Jerusalem. So that's something to look forward to next week. But remember one of the points that I made, which sometimes we forget, is that our faith is in God himself because we have relationship with Jesus Christ. So we have a personal relationship through Jesus Christ and our faith is in God himself, not just the promises. We don't have faith in his promises, but we believe his promises because we have faith in him. The new covenant itself is made up of five different um, components. Different writers might have a different number, but importantly, under the New Testament, God's law is written on our hearts. Under the Old Testament, it was actually sin that was written on our hearts. And so under the Old Testament, there was a lot of condemnation. But under the New Covenant, there is now no condemnation. Because Jesus dealt with our condemnation on the cross at Calvary. So that's the first part of the New Covenant. The second part is that we now have a relationship with God Sorry, there is now a relationship between God and all who are called. And of course, all are called to become followers of Jesus Christ and through following Jesus Christ to build relationship with God. Under the old covenant, the relationship with God always was mediated by the high priest. And so we never had that direct relationship with God. Now, every single one of us can, figuratively speaking, go into the Holy of Holies and be with God face to face. The third um, area of the New Covenant is that it promises that we will individually have a knowledge of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. So as we meditate on his word, 
the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. That doesn't mean that you can just go to sleep as soon as I start talking, of course, because we learn also by sharing and by discussing and even sometimes by arguing. But we have that promise that you don't have to wait until the Sunday morning discussion point to start learning about God and about his promises, about his nature and about his way. You can actually do it yourself because you have the Holy Spirit in you and with you 24-7. The fourth element is that there is forgiveness of sin. And I think many of us find that one of the most difficult things to accept. That unbelievable as it is, unimaginable as it is, God made the choice to forgive us of our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That he became the once for everyone and for all time sacrifice under this new covenant. And as I said to you last week, our sins are forgiven past, present and future. Now that is pretty amazing. But as I also pointed out last week, the Apostle Paul said that's not an excuse for us to sin. The fact that our future sins are forgiven isn't an excuse to sin because if we adopt a lifestyle of sin, then we're actually voluntarily withdrawing from the benefits of the new covenant and we're opening ourselves up to attack by Satan. So I would expect that if I lived a lifestyle of sin, I wouldn't have the blessings of prosperity and the blessings of health and all the other blessings that come to me as part of that covenant because I would open up a doorway for Satan to come in and rob me. Alright? So, it's important to understand that although we have been 100% forgiven for our sin, even the sin that we're going to commit tomorrow, that is not an excuse for sin. We're not meant by God to sin and then simply rationalise it away by saying, oh well, the blood of Jesus covers it all. And uh, Paul did make quite a point of that in his letter to the Romans. And uh, the final element of the new covenant is an eternal inheritance. Uh, we are seen by God as siblings of Jesus Christ, as his daughters and as his sons. And in the same way that Jesus Christ is an heir, he has an inheritance, so too do we. Now some people tend to focus on eternity as something that starts after we die. But actually it doesn't. We're in eternity now. It's just that the particular part of eternity that we're experiencing now is associated with our earthly lives, which will come to an end unless Jesus comes again. But it will come to an end. There'll be some people today whose life on earth comes to an end. None of us, of course, but there will be some people today whose lives will come to an end. They don't enter into eternity. They are already in eternity, but they go into a different, if you like, dimension of existence. And if they know Jesus, 
That existence is what we call heaven. If they don't, it's what we call hell. So let's remember those elements of the new covenant because that is what makes the Christian religion unique. There is nothing else that is quite like Christianity in terms of the fundamental basis of the religion. Quickly, I want to recap also on the source of prosperity. Uh, that quote up there is from uh, Genesis, and I've actually used the Amplified Bible there. There are three primary elements of the Abrahamic blessing. One was to do with the establishment of a nation, uh, that's Israel, and in New Testament times, of course, the nation is actually the whole of the body of Christ. Israel is still there, by the way, and still very important to God. The second part is, is land, and I focused on land as the basis of our prosperity. And the third is seed, which is the fact that all the families of the nations on earth will be blessed. And they'll be blessed because we become agents of blessing as we hear and obey our God. But the land is important because it is the land from which we actually create um, wealth. So our prosperity is actually created from what the Bible calls land. And uh, we spent some time last week talking about the importance of land from a biblical perspective. A couple of foundational principles that we touched on last week, and if you wonder why I keep repeating this, I really think... It is so important that we understand how God has provided for our prosperity. And I, I tend to use some scriptures from both the Old and the New Testaments because they both matter, but the New Testament is not identical to the Old Testament because under the Old Testament it was law by which we were justified, that is, by which we lived in right um, status with God or right connection with God in the New Testament it is by his grace so that's a very different circumstance but in Deuteronomy 8 18 God reminded Israel that it was he who gives us power to get wealth so all the capacities that we have to work were given to us by God all the capacities that the great entrepreneurs of the world have to create new products and large organisations and employment for people, it all comes from God. And one of the things that we've forgotten in Australia today, perhaps because we are as a nation so well off, we've forgotten that it's God, not a political party, not an economic system, not a rich parent who's left an inheritance, none of those things have given us power to get wealth, but God has given us power to get wealth, but through some of those things. In the New Testament, we're exhorted along the following lines, let him who stole steal no longer. That's a reference to someone who's not yet a Christian. But rather let him labour, working with his hands, what is good. Now, they are principles, principles that underpin Prosperity, but the purpose of prosperity is twofold. First, 
that God might establish his covenant on earth. And so one of the primary reasons why we have access to financial wealth, for example, is so that we can actually spread the gospel. We're all called to engage in the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of the nations. And that will only be accomplished if people use their prosperity to fund the mission work that goes on in the world. And then from Ephesians chapter 4, we see a purpose of prosperity is to have something to give to him who has need. So we're given the power to get wealth, the power to prosper, because God has on his heart salvation of the whole world. And he wants his covenant to be established in the hearts of all people across cultures, across geography, across time. And he wants to see those who are in need provided for. And really, social welfare was never a government idea. That didn't really happen until about the Second World War. So it's an idea that's not yet even a hundred years old. But it was something that the church was engaged in hundreds of years before governments ever took it up. So it's to establish God's covenant in the earth and it's to assist those who for whatever reason find themselves in hard times. The land, as we mentioned last week, I'll just go through this very quickly. It is the land that produces wealth, but we also need a social and an economic system that pays workers what they deserve. And uh, I, I love this passage from 2 Timothy. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. In other words, the person who produces is actually entitled under biblical principles to take a share of the crop. So it's not a biblical thing to exploit the people who work for you. And unfortunately, that does go on in our world today because, of course, it's not imperfect. The scripture says also, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain and the labourer is worthy of his wages. And uh, that was, that's in uh, the first epistle to, to Timothy, again pointing out how important it is that we treat the people who work for us justly when it comes to their pay. Now I want to introduce a few uh, new ideas. It's taken us a rather long time to uh, recap on so much that we've spoken of over the last few weeks. But as I said, I really do think it's really, really important. I, I, I believe that a lot of people sort of draw away from the things of God because they never understood really what it was that Jesus did for them. And it's one thing to encourage people to come to the front 
to respond to an order call and say, yes, I'm giving my heart to Jesus. But you know how Paul said, you start with milk and then you progress to meat. And if you don't get to the meat, then you will have a tendency, I think, to fall away because life gets tough and you don't have the foundation that you need to actually survive in the tough times. And life might get tired. That thing is not going to do too well with me, is it? And uh, we need to have a really solid foundation to help us get through those tough times. And I, I am a prosperity preacher. And I know that a lot of people don't like that idea. And the reason I'm a prosperity preacher is that I believe it is part of our inheritance to prosper. But it's not part of our inheritance to keep that to ourselves. And I've said before so many times, you see this over and over and over again when Pentecostal churches are established in the very low-income countries of the world, people realise that they can aspire to something better. And that's one of the outstanding characteristics of the faith that we have. It's okay to aspire to something better. It's okay to aspire to a situation tomorrow that is better than your situation today. And we wouldn't be able to say God is good if that wasn't the case. If God wanted to slap us around the head with a lump of 4B2 all the time, if God wanted to teach us a lesson by making us sick or by making us fail in a business, how could we say he was a good God? But he is a good God. And I think sometimes we don't have the courage to accept the promise and the reality of prosperity. So this is what God says. This is God's heart expressed in the Psalms. In Psalm 36, it's the second half of verse 27. King David is saying, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Oh my goodness, can you imagine how different Australia would be if instead of envy, we experienced pleasure when we see someone doing well? You've heard of the tall poppy syndrome, haven't you? Us Aussies tend to criticise and want to cut down people who succeed, especially people who succeed financially. We're not so tough on people who succeed in sport. We tend to make them heroes. But we tend not to think of people who have succeeded financially as heroes. We tend to want to cut them down, bring them down to our level, instead of aspire to move up to their level. But it brings God pleasure to see us prosper. I actually think Australia's national sin is envy. You hear it all the time. People criticise anybody who they perceive as being rich. And for most of us, I guess someone is rich if they have more than we do, right? Yeah. It's a terrible thing to fall into. And then you get irresponsible politicians who pander to it and basically say, well, 
if you vote for us, we're going to take money off all those rich people and give it to you. No biblical basis for that. Jesus actually said, the poor you will always have with you, you do something about it. Which is the heart of God. We're prospered so that his covenant might, might be established and so that we might help those who have need. God never intended a government to do that. Anyway, that's probably another topic, but it is an important point to make. Government isn't God. God has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And we see in the New Testament, in the, in the greeting, in 3 John, we see these beautiful words. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. That's an expression of the heart of God. If you, as I do, if you believe that this is the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that the writer was actually inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing this, it's a reflection of God's own heart. Beloved, and we are beloved of God. He loves us. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I often pray that early in the day for Jeanette, especially when she's on her way to work. Things can get pretty tough in the childcare industry. Isn't that right, Jeanette? Yeah. Isn't that right, Helen? <laughs> Ainsley's not here, but she knows that as well. They're all working in early... Things can get pretty tough in nursing, eh? I pray that everything you turned your hand to today may prosper as you live out your life in the shadow of his mighty wings. That's a bit of a quote from Psalm 119. But you see, it's God's heart. God desires us to prosper and he takes pleasure in our prosperity. Here's another scripture that we probably don't actually hear enough of in church. This is from Romans. It's right up in, at the beginning of Romans. Now, Romans is a bit of a hard book to read because it's written by Paul. And Paul was a highly educated man. And uh, he sometimes wrote really long sentences. And if you read Romans in the old King James Version, you'll find yourself having to take a number of breaths in every sentence because they are simply so long. And I don't know about you, but I have to read those sentences three or four times to figure out exactly what it is he's trying to say. But he was actually writing, if you like, a thesis in the book of Romans, proving that under the new covenant, it is God's grace through which we have been provided all that we have need of. And he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, that last sentence doesn't mean to imply that the Jews are somehow more important to God than the Greeks or the Gentiles. It was really a reference to the order in which Paul was preaching. 
So he used to go into the synagogues and he used to preach. And he was preaching to the Jews. And then he would preach to the Gentiles, usually because the Jews rejected him. Of course, he got flogged and he got put in jail. All sorts of things happened to Paul as he preached the gospel to the Jews. But he preached to the Jews and most of the time they didn't receive it and then he would go and preach to, to the Greeks. So it has nothing to do with who's more important to God. It was really just the order in which he practised his particular form of evangelism. Now, there are two words here that are pretty important. Salvation is one and the other one is gospel. In the, in the Greek, gospel actually means something more than good news. So we, we usually say, well, the gospel means good news. But in the Greek, it's actually a, what we call a superlative term. You know, like good, better, best. If, there are, if I have a number of choices, like Tim Tams, peanuts, and apples, right? The apple's good, the peanut's better, the Tim Tams best, all right? Something like that, that, that kind of progression, okay? So, you see, the gospel is the best news ever. And that's probably why a lot of people find it hard to accept. Because we talked ourselves into thinking, nothing good will happen to me. And you might have been told as you were growing up, you're good for nothing. You're not going to succeed. But here we've got the best news. And part of the best news is that God wants you to prosper in everything. And it's not just material things. It is spiritual as well. And it's your health and it's your relationships and it's your internal emotions. All of these things are elements of prosperity. We tend often to think of salvation as only a spiritual transaction. That once we've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, we're going to heaven. And that is true. But we shouldn't leave it there. Because the Greek word, so, um, it's soteria, if you really want to pronounce it properly, soteria, it means deliverance, preservation, prosperity, well-being. In other words, it's quite closely related to that Hebrew word shalom, which is usually translated peace, but it actually means absolute wholeness, nothing broken, nothing missing. So it's a concept of entire prosperity. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually as well. So salvation touches every area of our lives. It's not just about the security of knowing we will be with Jesus in heaven. It's also knowing that in this life, God fully intends to prosper us. And one of the most important steps that we can take to receiving what God has for us is actually believing it is possible. 
believing it is possible. That is, being kind enough to ourselves to have aspirations to be in a better place tomorrow than where we are today. And there's a whole lot of pretty solid theology around that. I've written some notes, but I've written them for me, really. Um, but if anybody wants my notes, of course, you are very welcome to have them. Now, it's interesting, of course, that the question we ended up with last week was, um, if, if all this prosperity stuff is true, then if I'm not a billionaire, have I failed? All right? If I'm, I'm supposed to prof prosper so that I can propagate the gospel and, and give something to the needy, does it mean I should be a billionaire? And if I'm not, have I failed? Well, I did a bit of research on all the rich dudes around the place. And uh, in 2017, there were 2,043 billionaires around the world. Not all that many, really, is it? 2,043, their combined wealth was uh, 7.7 .7 trillion US dollars. That's about 9.5 trillion Australian dollars. All right? So that's about 7.5 times the size of Australia's whole economy. So we're talking about a lot of prosperity, right? Yeah. So who are some of these rich dudes? I, I, I put a table up which um, might be a little bit hard to read in those colours, but can you can read it? That's good. You've got good eyes. Um, the, the world's wealthiest individual, this is in January 2018. I've got what they call a real-time um, table from uh, Forbes magazine. But the richest man in the world at the moment is Jeff Bezos, who was the founder of Amazon.com. 144 billion. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if he walked through these doors and we'd been praying for him, praying that he'd come to the Lord and he'd start tithing at Ignite Life Church? 14.4 <laughs> billion to start with. <laughs> Man, we'd be having some pretty good coffee on Sunday mornings, don't you reckon? <laughs> we'd be having some pretty good coffee. Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, that's an investment company, because everybody knows what Amazon.com is about. Berkshire Hathaway is an investment company. Warren Buffett's now about 87 years of age. And um, he put into practice with financial investment a, a, um, an approach that was developed by a university lecturer by the name of Ben Smith, I think his name was. Peter Phillips did a master's dissertation on, on, on this guy. Yeah, so when you see Peter next week, tell him Rod referred to his master's thesis in church on Sunday. <laughs> and if he wants to hear it in person, he should come. Yeah. <laughs> so Warren Buffett is sometimes known as the sage of Omaha. You might have actually heard him. He's interviewed every now and then. But he's invested in companies on stock markets, $115 billion dollars. Bill Gates, his, Bill Gates is also worth, uh, he's actually worth about a hundred million less than Warren Buffett. And Bill Gates was the richest man in the world for about seven or eight years. He's been toppled from that. But still, 115 billion is not too bad, eh? Yeah. yeah, not bad, eh? Wouldn't mind 10% of that either. <laughs> um, I thought you might be interested in the, the richest woman in the world. 
She's actually ranked number 25. Maria Franca Fusilo. And look what she made her money out of. Who's eating Nutella? Come on, who's put Nutella on their toast? Hey? No, who said no thanks? Don't you like it? Don't you like chocolate or you just don't like Nutella? It's got a lot of sugar in it, man. It's about 50% sugar. Yeah, but anyway, there you go. But she's made a lot of money out of it. So Nutella and other chocolate products, she's worth $41 billion. The richest Australian, she comes 76 on the list, Gina Reinhardt. Mining, she's worth $22 billion. And by the way, when she inherited from her father, Lang Hancock, she didn't actually inherit working mines, she inherited the right to exploration. So she's been a very successful entrepreneur in her own right over quite a few years now. So there you go, some of the richest dudes in the world today, they are multi-billionaires. So let's have a look at some of the rich dudes in the Bible. I thought it would be interesting. There's actually a fairly long list. And one of the interesting things is, God never condemned any of these people for their wealth. You know, it's a, it's a terrible deception that's got about the church over the last few hundred years that somehow being poor is holy. Being poor is being poor, right? Being poor is not the same thing as being holy. There's no particular benefit to our state of holiness that comes through poverty. I don't think poverty is a good thing at all. I don't think it's got anything to recommend it. And uh, my dad used to always say, if I'm going to be unhappy, I'd rather be rich and unhappy than poor and unhappy. <laughs> I think he's right. All right. But have a look at this. Abraham finds his way into Hebrews 11, the faith chapter in the Bible. He was a wealthy farmer. He had lots of flocks. He also had a big household because he had a lot of slaves and children eventually. Oh, grandchildren I mean. Jacob, another one of the patriarchs. Isaac, another one of the patriarchs. You know, we talk about the God of Abraham, Jacob and Isaac. We do that regularly and certainly the Jews did that throughout their history and they still do. Every one of these was Quite rich, and one day I'm, I'm going to tell the story about how um, Isaac became so rich. It's a good story. Boaz, another rich man. In fact, if he wasn't rich, and if Ruth wasn't gleaning, wasn't going through the crop, uh, picking up the leftover grain, they wouldn't have met and married, and that could have changed the whole of human history because Jesus was a descendant of Ruth. King David, he was a pretty rich dude as well. In fact, he made donations equivalent to well over a billion dollars towards the building of the temple. It was his son Solomon who actually built the temple. Solomon, of course, wisest man who ever lived, also most likely the richest man who ever lived. I read somewhere a couple of years ago, there is no government on earth today that could afford to build the temple. There was so much precious metal, gold, um, precious timbers in it. No government on earth today, not even the American government, could actually afford to build the temple. Isn't that amazing? 
Nehemiah. Jeanette's going to be talking about Nehemiah next week. Another rich person, Job. He was wealthy before all the misfortune befell him, before he came under attack by Satan, and he got double back later in life. So he got double rich towards the end of his life. Now there's another one whose name wouldn't fit on the screen. Barzillai. Now most people have never heard of Barzillai. There are, there are two Barzillais. There's one who was rich and there's one we don't know much about at all. And the Barzillai who was rich appears in 2 Samuel 17 verses 27 to 29 and 2 Samuel 19 verse 32. Now the Bible actually describes him as very rich. One of the things he did with his wealth though was he actually provided food for David and his mighty men when they were running away from King Saul. And uh, David had a couple of hundred, was it 200? 200 mighty men. So there's David and 200 people and this one very rich man, Barzillai, actually provided all of the food and everything that they needed while they were in exile. So he certainly was earning a lot more each year than I was because I wouldn't be able to afford to keep an army of 200 in food and water and shelter and travel expenses and all those kinds of things, but Brazil, I was able to do that. So you see, God used rich people, people who didn't hang on to their wealth, but who actually made it available and who ultimately influenced the path of history. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, let's have a look at the New Testament. Quite a few in the New Testament. There's 13 names up there on that list. Uh, Joseph called Barnabas, Dorcas, Cornelius, Sergius, Paulus, Lydia, Jason, Aquila and Priscilla, Nason of Cyprus, Phoebe, Erastus, Chloe, Philemon. And you'll find references to every one of these in the New Testament. A couple of interesting points. These people were all known either for their generosity to the poor or their support for the church, and in some cases, both. So their financial provision was critical to the development of Christianity in the earliest of days. And as I said, they were also known as people who were very generous to the poor. So what were they doing? They were using wealth to establish the covenant of God and to help those who were in need, which is exactly the purpose of prosperity. Another thing which is worth noting is that out of that list in the New Testament, five of the 13 were women. <laughs> See, God has always regarded women with exactly the same status as men. And these women, they were people who were engaged in business. And they had created wealth through their businesses and used it for the purposes of God. So, are we either billionaires or failures? In other words, should we, should we be like all those rich dudes in the Bible and the rich dudes in the world today? Well, you'll be glad to know, I expect, that it's okay if you're not a billionaire. It's actually okay if you're not a billionaire. I'm going to explain in a reason why 
actually most of us would probably be glad we're not billionaires because God might have rather high expectations of us. You see, the thing about prosperity is that God releases prosperity to us with purpose. He doesn't want us to be prosperous so that we can be like old King Cole counting out his money in his counting house. Remember that children's nursery rhyme? What did he do? Old King Cole just sat in his palace counting out his money. That's not what prosperity is for. And so if you want me to give you a definition, and there are a few other um, theologians I've come across and, and pastors as well who define prosperity similarly to this. So I'm not on my own. But if the purpose of prosperity is, is to establish God's covenant and to support the poor, then for the individual, for you and me, prosperity is having enough to do what God has called us to do. So I'm prosperous if I have enough to do what God has called me to do. Now I don't. So I'm aspiring to a greater level of prosperity because there's stuff I need to do that I cannot do by way of reaching people for Christ and by way of helping those who are in need. Now we do it as a church as we help the school in uh, Gawari in, uh, in Uganda. Um, some of us have supported Pastor Jonah and I got a video from him a couple of weeks ago showing how the school that he's building is developing. They've built a wall around it now. So we are contributing. But I believe the call is greater for me personally and probably for us as a church. So I would say, no, we're not at the point yet where we're prospering as much as I believe God would desire us to prosper. And you need to think yourself in your own time in prayer and in reading through the Word of God, what am I called to do? Because that's the first question you need to answer if you're trying to get a handle on prosperity. What specifically is God calling me to do in terms of establishing the covenant and of giving something to those who are in need? And then you can start to form an idea of the level to which God desires you to prosper as an individual. Now, I happen to believe that whether or not that those people on the, the list of rich dudes, whether or not those 2,043 people are Christians, God expects them to do something with their wealth. Here's an interesting historical fact, and I, I've heard this, I've checked that it's not urban myth, it actually did happen. But uh, Bill Gates was married and I think it was 1994, and his mother wrote a letter to his then fiancée, and in that letter, this is what she said. She said a lot of other things too, but this is what she said. And she said this to Melinda, who was about to marry Bill. Now, Bill is not a professing Christian. I've had that from people who are very close to him, he might be today, I don't know what might have happened since I was told these things. But that's not the point. His mother said this in the letter, from those to whom much is given, much is expected. Now Bill Gates reports that he carries that letter around with him to this day. The interesting thing is, that's a direct quote from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, 
48. Now, there's a little bit of context around it, but it's a very important point that if God has prospered us, then he has an expectation that we will use it for biblical purposes. Now, it's interesting to note that Bill Gates did set up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they have given billions of dollars away. And in fact, a lot of the people on that billionaire's list have given multiple billions of dollars away, particularly to the poor. They've invested a lot in things like education and health systems, making sure that children can get clean water, for example, where otherwise they wouldn't be able to access clean water. Um, you will note that um, what's his name? Warren Buffett was on that list of billionaires as well. Warren Buffett has made pledges uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation himself as well. And these people pledge to give away most of their wealth. They're, they're not planning to leave it after they die. Now, Andrew Forrest in Australia, Andrew Forrest and his family, they don't feature on that list of billionaires. And one reason for that is they've already given away a lot of money. They've pledged to give $1.5 billion to the poor through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So listen, folks, let's not envy those who are billionaires or those who live a lifestyle that we perhaps could not even dream of. Let's not envy them. Let's pray for them because from whom, sorry, from those who have a lot, plenty, God also expects plenty. And they might not yet know that if they're not Christians. The other thing that I think is pretty interesting on that list, most people on that list did not inherit their wealth. They did not inherit. I, I did a big study of this a couple of years ago. Most of them didn't inherit wealth, so they, they didn't get money from their mum and dad. There's a few who are in that category. The Waltons, for example. Sam Walton established Walmart in the, in, in the United States. He was a Christian. He, a number of his children are very, very wealthy now. They inherited that wealth, but on the whole, these people started with virtually nothing, and they built up businesses into multi-billion dollar enterprises, and some of it we've seen with our own eyes, haven't we, in our own lifetime. Amazon.com, for example, um, Facebook's another one, Mark Zuckerberg, he's a multi-billionaire. But you see, whether or not they know it, whether or not they acknowledge it, it is God who has given them power to get wealth. And he sees them as responsible for using that wealth to establish his covenant and to provide for those who are not as well off as they are. So be careful what you pray for because you might just get it I believe in prosperity. I believe that one of the things Jesus went to the cross for was to release prosperity into the body of Christ. I think it's a godly thing for all of us to aspire to improve our prosperity position. But always remember, yes, God takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servant, but his earnest desire is that we would use it 
for godly purposes. And I believe that in doing so, it will multiply back to us so that we become even more influential in spreading the gospel around the world and in helping those who, for whatever reason, are not doing so well at the moment.